Acts 26, let's go. Acts 26, let's open up. Now, we read through this entire passage last week, and we went through most of it, but I didn't want to cut short this particular part of it um, that I left from last week. So we're just going to pick it up, uh, and I want to read. You know that the beginning of this, it, it, it starts with giving us the, the historical narrative portion about how it came to be that the Apostle Paul once again <clears throat> is making his defense and being having the opportunity to speak on behalf of God and on behalf of the gospel, on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ, this time in front of King Agrippa and his consort Bernice, as well as Portius Festus, the Roman official, and many other nobles and officials who are gathered there with him. And the part of this that we emphasized last week was the aspect of Paul being able to talk about what he was. And I hope you were encouraged by that because some of us, there are two pitfalls that Christians fall into, I think, sometimes. One is that as we live our lives, we become nostalgic and we, we remember some of the ways of our past some of the ways that uh, are maybe sinful and sinful pleasures and stuff that we used to revel in and we, we start talking about them and we find ourselves laughing and joking about the sinfulness of our past. You don't want to live there anymore. I read a, I read a Charles Spurgeon quote just recently and, uh, and I, don't, I don't have it verbatim. I have it on my phone here, but I don't want to, uh, I don't want to pick up my phone and read off of it. But, oh, actually I am. You know what? It's 2022. I can read off my phone from the pulpit. Can I? All right. So, listen. He, Spurgeon said, if you are renewed by grace and you were to meet your old self, I am sure you would be very anxious to get out of his company. Right? That's a pretty interesting quote, right? I think it's true. Like, like here I am, redeemed Lou, and God's done some work in my life. But if I met old Lou before he was saved, I would probably want to witness to him or give him a gospel track and get away from him, right? You may think that's harsh, harsh way to look at yourself, but that's what happens sometimes with Christians is we kind of stumble on the other end of that and we find ourselves reveling in the memory of our old lives before we knew Christ and we find ourselves joking about things that Jesus took to the cross with him, right? So that's one thing we slip into. The other side of that coin that sometimes Christians slip into that you need to be very careful about is kind of, like I said, the opposite is we start to dwell on our pasts and we, and, and, and we get dragged into it and we forget the grace of God. And, and, and we start to doubt that God could possibly save us. And we start to doubt that God could possibly use us because back then I was this. Back then I used to be this. And 
You know, the great joy that we had when we first came to Christ and realized there was the forgiveness of sins gets drowned out by that very carnal, earthly thinking that somehow God really isn't powerful enough to redeem me. God's grace really isn't enough for me. Or, or you know, I still battle and struggle with many of the same things and that's evidence that I'm not really saved. That's not, that's not true. It isn't true. He's redeemed you. Look, look, if you're wantonly, without any fear of God, unrepentantly continuing to walk in sin joyously, yeah, then maybe as you examine yourself, there's a problem. But if you love the Lord truly and you're humble and you know you repented and you know that the Lord has saved you and you still battle and struggle with the sinfulness of your past, you're, guess what? You're part of a club, man. You're part of the church. That's the experience of Christianity, right? You know, Paul talked about doing the things that he didn't want to do and not doing the things that he did want to do. Oh, wretched man, who's going to deliver me from all this? And that's when you need to remember who it is who delivers us from all of that. Jesus. And his deliverance is not like a, 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 a whitewashing to the point where it's like we achieve or attain to a perfection of holiness while we still occupy the flesh that we trained ourselves to be expert sinners in for how many every years it was before we were redeemed. You understand? So don't go there either. Instead, do what Paul did in this passage and use the sinfulness of your past, use the, 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 the ways of your past as a way to describe for people, here's what I used to be, but look what Jesus did now when he met me and that's not a way to say wow look at me that's a way to say wow look at Jesus I used to persecute the church I used to stand there and say kill them when it came to like trying to get them to blaspheme God and stuff I used to be against the gospel I was zealous for the law which never could redeem anybody but then the Lord Jesus he wasn't like he wasn't saying that because he was ashamed he wasn't saying that because he was guilty filled with guilt and overcome with grief and guilt over his whole life and you know strictly from an earthly perspective how hard that must be to know that I actually took part in killing people because they believed in the Jesus that I serve now that had to have a hardness to it, right? Right? You know, next time you get into the point where you're thinking like, well, how could God have ever really saved me? You remember that so much of the New Testament is presented to us in the instructional words of an apostle who used to be a persecutor of Christians. Yes. And you, he, Paul used his background to say, that's what I used to be, but now here's what I am. And Jesus is the reason why. Hallelujah. And yeah, will some people mock that? Yes, of course. But sometimes people will hear that and they'll be like, they'll be like Agrippa. You almost persuade me to become a Christian. And sometimes people will go beyond that and actually get saved and become Christians. So that was last week. We talked about using your past as a platform from which to share your testimony and preach the gospel to people as opposed to your past being some kind of prison that you're just stuck with. And then, of course, what's going to happen? One day, we're going to be with the Lord, and the scripture says on that scene, he's going to wipe away every tear. And it's all just going to be, it's not even going to be a memory. It's going to be as if it never happened. And we're just going to be with him. New bodies, new relationships, 
working, working, uh, serving God forever. No more battle or struggle with the flesh and sin because it's new, incorruptible bodies that we inhabit. Isn't that amazing? That's your future by the grace of God. That is your future. Are you encouraged by that today? Boy, if that doesn't encourage you, then what Bible are you reading and what Christianity are you being part of? This is the whole thing. This is what Christianity is all about. This is the takeaway. This is the reward. This is the gift that one day, one day when this life ends, I will be with him forever and I will be redeemed. I'm already redeemed now, but I will I will experience the fullness of that redemption in a way where the scourge of sin will have no touch on me, not on the body that I inhabit and not on the memory, the mind that I possess. That's where we're headed. So you use your past as a platform from which to say, let me tell you what Jesus has done for me. He saved this wretch. I was blind, but now I see. Now, we pick up, but then, in this passage, in Acts 26, you get to, we got to verse 19, Acts 26, 19. And let me, with that review set aside now, let me say a prayer and read uh, verse 19 just to the end of the chapter, which isn't very much. And I want to talk about, here Paul once again describes for his audience the content of the message that he shared as he went around. He did this once before, and here he does it again. And so we have it twice in the Bible, so we get it a second time. Let us pray. Our Father, dear Lord God, thank you for your word now. Like Deacon Steve read before, it's profitable for doctrine, all scripture, profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. You equip us for good works by the preaching and teaching of all Scripture. How marvelous. Help me to speak. Help all of us to listen, understand, receive, believe, and put into practice the things that we learn. Thank you, Lord. Let your will be done in this teaching today. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts 26, 19, listen. So we're right mid-address here. Mid-address. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. That's when Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. But declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles. Here's what he declared to them. That they should repent. Turn to God and do works befitting repentance. For these reasons, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand witnessing both to small and great, saying... No other such things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come. That the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead, and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. And we're going to focus on that, but let me just read the rest of it. 
Now, as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud Paul, Paul, you're beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. But he said, I'm not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. For the king, that's a reference to Agrippa who's sitting right there, for the king before whom I also speak freely knows these things. For I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention since this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only you but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am. Except for the chains. (laughs) When he had said these things, the king stood up as well as the governor and Bernice and those who sat with him. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves saying, this man is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. Then Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Because I guess once you appeal to Caesar, you can't take it back. So, so, Agrippa and Festus realize this guy hasn't done anything wrong. He's certainly not worthy of dying. He's not even worthy of being in chains. He hasn't done anything criminal. He hasn't done anything wrong. But he appealed to Caesar and not going to retract that. All right. Well, if we have time at the end, we'll say something about the reactions of Festus and Agrippa to all of that. But I really want to get into this description by Paul of the content of his words, that he says what? He says everywhere I went, right? Look at the comprehensiveness of it. In verse 19, he said, I wasn't disobedient to the heavenly vision. The heavenly vision is when Jesus appeared to him and said, you're you're, going to be my witness, basically, right? I mean, it's almost the same thing that he said to the rest of them that were gathered as recorded in Acts 1.8. You know, before he ascended back to heaven, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, the uttermost part of the earth. Very similar situation. He, it, the, the difference being, of course, the ones that he was, Jesus was speaking to in Acts chapter 1 were believers. Paul was not yet a believer when Jesus knocked him off the horse, so to speak, blinded him for a few days, and, but basically told him and told Ananias who he had told to lay hands on him that he would be healed from that temporary blindness, told him, this is my chosen vessel to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And so Paul starts off here by saying to Agrippa, I was not disobedient to that. In other words, I mean, in other words Agrippa, I'm doing what Jesus told me to do. That's all. Jesus appeared to me. You notice, how, you notice how Paul's not afraid. He doesn't back down. He's not afraid to just say as a matter of fact, to just, uh, he's not afraid to presume the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And it's like, you know, we would be like, oh, well, you know, I don't, I don't want to base what I'm saying on that, you know, because like, what if he doesn't believe that Jesus rose from the dead? That's going to blow my whole thing. Paul doesn't care about that. Paul knows Christ is alive. And so when Paul speaks, he just presumes that it's true. And if somebody else doesn't believe it, guess what? God is sovereign. And God needs to open the mind and open the heart of that person. So he just presumes and he says what? He says, uh, he said, I wasn't disobedient to that vision. 
And then he says, here's what I did, verse 20. But I declared. He declared. He spoke. He preached. I declared who? First to those in Damascus. There was an amazing scene, right? I'll let you go back earlier in Acts and read it for yourself. But the people in Damascus had no idea that this thing happened on the road, right? So the people at the synagogue in Damascus, they were excited that Paul was coming because he was going to root out of their synagogue anyone who believed in this Jesus. And then Paul shows up at the synagogue and the great day had come. Go to work. Well, he was in their minds, he was still Saul, right? Go to mind. Go to work, brother Saul. Let's go. Let's have at it. And then Saul does what? He shocks them. He stands up and he preaches that Jesus is the Messiah and that he died for our sins and that he rose from the dead. So he said, I I first declared it to Damascus and then Jerusalem, right? So he eventually gets out of Jerusalem or out of Damascus in a basket through a hole in the wall because as soon as he started preaching Jesus, they wanted him dead, a pattern that would follow him through the rest of his life, including where he is right now in this passage. But uh, he spent some years in the desert. We know that from his self-description in the book of Galatians. But eventually he goes to Jerusalem and he goes in and he meets Peter and he gets a chance to speak to the Jews there. Now talk about shocking. It was shocking enough what he did in Damascus. Now he goes back to Jerusalem and in Jerusalem, not this time in Jerusalem, but many years before, he, he goes back there and he is near and in the same city as the people who gave him the letters giving him permission to go to the Damascus synagogue to begin with to persecute the Christians. But now he comes back to Jerusalem and he starts preaching Jesus. Right? And then throughout all the region of Judea. So not just in Jerusalem, but in the whole province, in the whole area. Everywhere he went, he started preaching Jesus. Hallelujah? That's, the, that's supposed to be the pattern for us. That's Acts 1.8. That's Acts 1.8, which was given to the whole church, put into practice in the life of one person, which, which, which should still be put to practice in our lives. Right? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. That's still our clarion call. That's still our charge. Hand in hand with go into all the world, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe whatsoever things I have commanded you. Lo, I'm with you under the always, unto the end of the age. That's Matthew uh, 28, 19, and 20. That's what's known as the Great Commission, but the fuel, the power behind all that, all authority is given to me in heaven and earth. And he says, you're going to receive power when the Spirit comes upon you. Paul's living that out. Paul says to Agrippa, I merely lived out what God wants all of his children to live out and what God wants you and I to live out. Go to work sharing the gospel to people. You know, you don't, you know, it doesn't have to be like a big, we build it up in our minds, this big complicated, just grab some literature and go and hand it to people. Here, read this, God bless you. It could be as simple as that. And maybe the Lord will open up a chance to talk to someone, but even if he doesn't, you've given someone something they can read or plant a seed, they can think about it. I know I plug this all the time and I'm never going to stop. And I do it myself, by the way, just so you know, so I'm not like being a hypocrite about this. But this is the activity that we're supposed to be about. But then comes the end of verse 20. All right? Because, you know, I declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout the region of Judea, then what? And to the what? Gentiles. Gentiles. Uh Uh-oh. 
here, here, here's where the big trouble, it was already big trouble because the Jews, the religious leaders of the time were not particularly happy that Jesus was being preached among their own people. But they were especially not happy that Paul was preaching that God, Yahweh, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Israel, the God of the Old Testament, Paul was preaching that Gentiles could be redeemed and reconciled to Yahweh simply through faith in this Jesus, to Gentiles. Well, you know, then it's like he just needs to die, right? He just needs to die, and that's what they're after. So first, he just very openly declares that just as I was told, I took it to the Gentiles. Now, look where we're at. Here's the content. Here's the content of what he preached. Here is the most blessed message in the history of the world and the most hated message in the history of the world, all wrapped up in a few words. You should repent. Repent. Even in modern Christianity, repent is a word that is made to be this incredibly complicated thing to the point where Christians even fight over it. In some circles, even of evangelical Christians, they believe repentance has no place in a person getting saved. I know that astonishes you, or it should. Certainly astonishes me. I don't know how you escape it. But they confuse what repentance is with works. And you can see in this statement that repentance is something separate from works, can't you? Because he tells them they should repent to do, turn to God and do works befitting repentance. So, so the works that are done are something that go hand in hand with repentance but are distinct from it. You see? It's, it's, very, it's very clear. But this is, this is, listen, this is the message of Jesus. In those days, uh, from that time, Mark chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right? In the early church, in Acts chapter 2, when Peter preaches that first sermon at Pentecost, after he preaches and lays out for them about how the Messiah, the Old Testament, prophesied that the Messiah would die and rise from the dead. And when David spoke of that, he couldn't have been speaking of himself because his grave was right there. So we're preaching to you that this Jesus is the Messiah, etc. in Acts chapter 2. And it says, when they heard that message, they were cut to the heart and they said to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And what did Peter say? Repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Amen. Call what? To repentance. Yes. Hallelujah. In Samaria, a bunch of people get saved in Acts chapter 8. And there's this sorcerer whose name is Simon, which is coincidentally Peter's given name, Simon Peter. And this sorcerer, when he sees that people are filled with the Holy Spirit and he sees the, some of the unusual miracles that God worked in those days happening, this sorcerer thinks, boy, I need that power. 
And he offers the apostles, Peter and John, he offers them money. Here, how much you want? Give me that power so that I could do it too. Peter says, your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter for your heart isn't right in the sight of God. And then he says what? Repent. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you for I can see that you're poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. So he calls this individual sinful man who's thinking with this carnal, reprobate, dead mind. Repent! Acts chapter 17, my favorite spot. I know I go to it a lot, but it's so amazing. Of all the places in the world to stand, Paul is standing at the Areopagus among the Greek philosophers, the Stoics, the Epicureans. He's standing there. It's a Gentile audience. And he's surrounded by a bunch of monuments and idols and all sorts of statues that people worship. And they even have one to the unknown God. And he says, that's the God I'm telling you about, the one that you have no idea who he is. And he says this, We ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone. There's courage standing in the midst of a whole bunch of gold and silver and stone that everybody worships. We should not think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art or man's devising. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooks, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained and he's given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Hallelujah. What a glorious sermon that is. I think sometimes of all the places, if you could go back in history and be somewhere, I have, I have often thought to myself, that's where I'd like to be is, is listening to Paul preach in Athens and telling you, tell, and standing there there's this, this, this man who must be all beat up in his life and he's standing there and he's surrounded by all these grossly offensive statues of all these weird things that people would make offerings to and do, do uh, depraved, reprobate things in front of trying to appease the gods and everything else. And Paul's in this lecture hall with all of these well-learned uh, uh, Stoic philosophers and Epicurean philosophers, all the you go to high school, you go to college, and you're told about how wise the Greeks were, and you listen to all the, the wisdom of the Greeks, and they were, and there's Paul, all by himself, just standing there. Listen, you shouldn't think that God is like this stuff. Now, God overlooked all of this nonsense and foolishness, but now He commands men everywhere repent. Yeah. Man, something else. What is repentance? Well, we already know that repentance is not works. Repentance does not mean stop. I'm going to do my best with all of my strength to stop sinning. Good luck with that. Right? That's not repentance. No. 
Repentance is something that happens inside a person. And repentance is a gift from God. The, uh, the Puritan preacher Thomas Watson said, Repentance is a grace of God's spirit, whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. The visible reformation comes after, right? But that's what repentance is. Repentance is something that happens inside someone, and it's a gift from God. One of God's greatest gifts to men, I believe, is repentance. And the, uh, and, 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 and the fact that God, I mean, think about this. God commands that men repent. But, but repentance, the fact that God would even receive repentance, you know? Like, humans are very harsh with one another. And if someone has offended another human... If that person is like truly humbled and broken in that offense, very often the other human will say, I will never forgive them. Take a very high-handed thing. Maybe say to their face, oh, that's okay, I forgive you. And then run around to every other person they know and say, hey, you get, let me tell you what happened here. Huh? That's how humans are. God... Think about this. God receives the repentance of sinners. What are sinners? Sinners are the arch enemies of God. We have been given every imaginable good thing that you could possibly have. Look at this. Just this day here today. We're, we're sitting here in freedom. Maybe you had some coffee or some breakfast this morning and you, you put some clothes on and you drove your nice car or whatever it is and you got you here and you're here and you're with your friends and you get to hear some music and sing some songs and you get to smile and say hi to people when it's over and then when it's done, you're going to go out and you're going to go eat somewhere, you're going to go home, you're going to spend some time. I understand we have hard seasons in life, but mostly, mostly, mostly our lives as modern Americans in the 21st century is pretty prosperous and pretty blessed. That's not to minimize any of the suffering or the hardship that's going on in the world. But listen, we have air to breathe, we have clothes to wear, we have food to drink, we have shelter, we have transportation, we have our minds, we have friends, we have relationships, and every good thing in our lives comes down from the Father of lights and He adds no sorrow to any of it. And what has man done with that? Has God really said, don't touch that? No, no, no. God, God knows that in the day that you eat of that, you'll become like him, knowing good and evil. Sounds good to me. I mean, who, I mean, I mean why, wouldn't God, why wouldn't God want me to eat this? I mean, God loves me. God's blessed me. Um, I, I, I'm here, Adam, you eat it too. Sure, Eve, yeah, that's wonderful. Let's eat it. That's what man did in response to all of God's goodness. That's what man did. The very beginning said, no God, we know better. And we still do it today. God would have been perfectly just to simply wipe out all of humanity, which he virtually did in the days of Noah. But because of his love and his mercy and his grace, he spared Noah and his family. And everyone who has lived on earth now and ever since is a descendant of those eight people. So listen, when you read the story of Noah and the flood and you see how God, who would have been perfectly just to wipe out all of humanity, spared 
Those eight. See, people get it wrong. People say, well, God spared eight people. No, he didn't. God spared billions of people. Because every one of you is a descendant from them. Think about it. The, The seed, if you will. The lineage of every human who has ever lived was inside the ark. God spared you. You wouldn't exist if God didn't do that. And now, and now God, ready? Even though the developing humanity after that became every bit as wicked, if not more wicked than the humanity before it, God actually receives repentance. God grants. It's a grace of God, as Watson said. God grants that repentance is something that he responds to. God says in his word that he resists the proud, but he gives his grace to the humble. And humility and repentance are brother and sister, brother and brother, sister and sister, however you want to think of it, husband and wife. True humility is always at work in true repentance, right? Never separate from one another. The fact that God responds to a repentant soul is, I would say, one of the greatest blessings that exists in all of existence. Sometimes we think of we think of the doctrine of election as being unfair. What? You know what's not fair? What's not fair is that anybody is saved at all. Let's let's find the one person who ever lived righteously and kill him. And let that be a sacrifice for all of the other rotten, wicked sinners. That's not fair in my mind. But I'm the beneficiary of it. And so I humble myself and I receive it and I believe it and I say, thank you, God. That God even receives repentance. Now listen, repentance doesn't save you. It's not repentance that saves you, but a repentant heart, a repentant spirit is necessary in a person who is going to truly believe. Here is one of the great calamities of modern evangelism and the modern American so-called Christian gospel is people are sinful. People are proud. People are sinful and they love their sin. And we go to people and instead of warning them about sin and warning them about the penalty for sin, we go to them and we ask them, Do you believe in heaven and hell? I guess. Would you like to go to heaven one day? Yeah. Well, if you'd like to go to heaven one day, just uh, here's what God did for you. Jesus died for your sins and he was buried and he rose from the dead. Just pray and ask him to save you and you'll go to heaven. And we make, we go to proud sinners and we scratch the itch of their pride. We, listen, we go to people who want everything their way, and then we offer them something that just piles on with the immaturity of getting everything their way. 
and never confront them in sin, when the confrontation of sin is what brings a person to repentance, that in true repentance and true humility, they may receive and believe the gospel of Christ. We make the gospel, here's another good thing for you because you just matter so much. Here's another good thing for you that you can add on to all the other pleasure that you've destroyed your life with. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that when Jesus died, he received in his body the justice and the wrath of God against my sin. Right? When Jesus died, he who knew no sin became sin for me. That I might through faith in him become the righteousness of God. The gospel is... First of all, a confrontation with a sinner's sin. It must be. It must be. The gospel is not an accommodation of sinners in their sin. The gospel is a call to sinners to die to their sin. That's why Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's why Peter said, repent and be baptized and every one of you receive this gift. That's why Paul said, God commands men everywhere to repent. Repentance is this. Repentance is that humble, inward understanding that I have sinned against the holy God and my sin actually does matter and leave me condemned. It is a change of mind. My mind before I repented was, and and listen, when I try to witness to people, the thing that breaks my heart more than anything is when they respond by saying, I'm okay with God, I'm good. I would rather have them slap me in the face, and I mean that. My heart is broken when someone says, I'm okay with God. Because I know, first of all, that a true Christian would never say that. A true Christian would say, listen, if I tried to witness to someone and they happened to be a true believer, a true Christian would say, listen, I understand what you're doing because you're doing the most important thing that anyone could ever do because I was right where you were. I'm a wretched sinner. I have no hope of salvation except for the fact that Jesus died for my sins and rose from the dead. And what we do sometimes, the mistake we make is we go to people who already think they're okay with God and tell them, yep, you are. Just pray and ask Jesus to save you and you'll go to heaven. And no repentance has been stirred up. Repentance is a complete brokenness. And some people describe repentance as turning to God, but I think repentance even comes before that because look what Paul says. He lists them separately. Here's what I used to say when I went everywhere and preached to the Gentiles. I told them that they should repent, turn to God. So, so turning, from, turning to God is something separate from repentance. Turning to God is what the repentant person does. Repentance is the brokenness. The repentance is... I realize now that God is real. I realize that I have sinned against Him. I realize I'm not okay 
with Him, I realize that I am justly and righteously judged and condemned because of my sin. I have no other hope. I have no hope in and of myself. Repentance is the person who is completely crushed under the burden and the weight of their own sin. God has fabulous, wonderful, great news for that person. There's a way out from all of it. See, that's, where, that's why preaching the gospel right is important. The gospel is what is supposed to come into that. The gospel is the news that comes into that. Good tidings, glad tidings of great joy, which will be for all people, for unto you this day is born in the city of David. What? A Savior, who is Christ, the Messiah, the Lord. That's, that's where, it's, it's when you contextualize the gospel by preaching sin and warning someone that God is holy and righteous. And when that person is humbled, when that person is humbled, they're ripe. Lift up your eyes and look at the fields. They're white at the harvest. There's the harvest field. The people who recognize, man, I'm not right with God. You want an example? Shake your head yes. Okay, Luke chapter 23. You just listen to this because you know this. You write it down, look at it later if you want. But Luke 23, 39. You know this story very, 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 very. That's four varies. One more, five. Very well. I've preached about it before. I've devoted entire sermons to it before. And I will again. Only the Gospel of Luke records that one of the thieves on the cross next to Jesus repented and believed. And in that account, Luke 23, 39, in that account you see a picture of repentance. You see what repentance looks like. And you'll notice that repentance is not works. It's the change of the mind. I know that because of this. The other gospel accounts all say what about these two thieves? Even those who were crucified with him mocked him. So as the day started out and Jesus is on the cross and there's a thief on either side, they both mocked him. They were both mockers. But they heard, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They heard all of these things that happened. And then, then as the day went on and all the mocking and all the mocking went on, one of the criminals decides himself, I'm going to mock Jesus here again. And Luke records that one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, if you're the Christ, that itself is a statement of blasphemy because he was the Christ. So there's no if. That's where the blasphemy is. The blasphemy is in the if. There is no if. It's, it's a testing. If you're really the Christ, then, and then fill in your, your earthly, selfish, proud demand. Do it to God all the time. If he's really God, he'll do this. If he's really God, if he's really there, he wouldn't let me. He is God, period. One of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, if you're the Christ, save yourself. And us. Verse 40 then. Here's where it's different than any of the other Gospels. But the other answering rebuked him. You know this, right? You know this well. So the other thief now, who was 
at some point also mocking Christ. So he's had a change of mind. Yes. He's had a change of mind while he's hanging there on the cross. He's had a change of mind. And now instead of going along with the mockery of the guy over there, now he, maybe he's able to turn his head a little bit. I, I don't know, but he says this. Ready? Do you not even fear God? Seeing you're under the same condemnation. Here it is. Ready? Here's the expression of a truly repentant person. Ready? We indeed justly. Me dying here on this cross is justice. I deserve this. I am a sinner. I have broken the law. I am a thief. I am a robber. The law demands that I die. Right? Don't you fear God? You're under the same condemnation. You're dying just like he's dying, but we're, we're dying justly. For we receive the due reward of our deeds. That's a repentant spirit. That's one of the best pictures of repentance in the whole Bible. At some point in the day, the thieves mocked. But at some point, one of them repented, had a change of mind, a change of spirit, a change of heart. And it was expressed when he said, we deserve this. We are justly dying. We receive the due reward for our deeds. We invite people to pray and ask Jesus to be their Lord and Savior and God will give them heaven. Boy, that is such a shallow, incomplete representation of what the gospel is and what the gospel means and what the gospel brings about, by the way, in the life of someone who believes. We invite people and tell them that God promises to save them before they ever come to the point where they're like, I deserve to die. I deserve, I deserve to be condemned. Not that it has to be like religiously spoken like that, but the conviction needs to be there. That's the other great expression of repentance in the Bible is Psalm 51, right? David in his repentance. And what does David, the most famous line I think in that psalm is that the broken and contrite spirit you will never refuse. What is that? Psalm 51, 17, I think. The broken and contrite. That, that, that's a repentant spirit. That's the one that God speedily, gladly, graciously, lovingly, immediately comes to. That's the one that God leaves the 99 to go find and go after. To bring to himself. The broken, the contrite. And he will never, ever, ever refuse it. And here's proof in Luke chapter 23. He turns to Jesus. See, there's the turning, right? So he's already repented. Now he literally, his head turns to Jesus. Which is what Paul said. I preached to them that they repent, turn to God. So now, out of that repentant spirit, we deserve this. We deserve to die for our crimes. And in that repentant spirit, he turns to Jesus and says, Lord, look at that. He was mocking him before. 
now he recognizes that he is inches away from the Lord. That's a change. Lord, remember me. Remember me? How is he going to remember you? He's going to die. Well, that's an acknowledgement that he recognizes who this is, right? When you come into your kingdom, so he recognizes that he's the Lord. He recognizes that he is able to save him even after he dies. And he recognizes that he's the king and he's on his way to his kingdom. Yeah, that's repentance. That's, that's, that's the effect of repentance. And that's someone who truly turns to God. And you know what Jesus' response to that is? Do you know, do you know that, do you know that this is the only thing, I'm trying to think it through one time, I thought about this before, I'm just, just checking, making sure in my mind. In the Bible, this is the only thing that's recorded that Jesus responded to from the cross. He said other things, right? He called John and Mary over and said, behold your mother, behold your son. But all the stuff that people said to him while he was on the cross... The scripture actually says, as a lamb before his shearers was silent, so he opened not his mouth. But here, here he responds. He responds to the repentant one. He responds to the broken one. He responds to the believing, broken, repentant one who cries out to him. This is not just, I want to go to heaven. Save me. This is, man, I know I deserve to die for my crimes. And then it's like, Lord, King, remember me. The answer is, it's the only thing that it's recorded when he's on the cross that he answers. All the mockery. If you're the Christ, save yourself. Blah, 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 blah. Aha, you, all that. Assuredly, in other words, I promise you, I say to you, today, 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 this very day, you will be with me in paradise. Paul says, when I received the heavenly vision, I obeyed it. And everywhere I went, this is what I preached to people. I preached that they should repent, turn to God, and what? I, I think Paul would be like run out of the modern American church because he said they should do works befitting repentance. Yeah. Oh, now, now you're in trouble, boy. You mentioned the W word. Why are we so afraid of this? And why do we make it so complicated? He's not talking about works that are meritorious. He's not talking about works that would themselves bring salvation to a person. He's talking about works that are consistent with repentance. He's talking about the same thing that John the Baptist preached about when he warned them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And he said, bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. And they said, well, what should we do? And he said, well, if you stole, you give it back. If you, if you don't cheat people, the soldiers don't intimidate people. Do works fitting repentance. In Titus chapter 3, he tells them, I want you to affirm constantly that our people are filled with good works. When he wrote to the Ephesians, he said, you're God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which the Lord has determined prepared beforehand that they should walk in them. 
Good works are an important manifestation, an important place. They are the role of the redeemed person. But they have no place in bringing that redemption about. It's so clear. A person humbles themselves in repentance, turns to God in faith, and then once reconciled to God, devotes themselves to a life of good works and service to the Lord. What is hard about this? Well, it's so simple that Paul almost got killed for it. They wanted Paul dead because he preached it to the Jews and he preached it to the Gentiles. And by the way, Deacon Steve read for us before, all scripture, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. What was Paul's message? What was Paul's source material for the message that he preached. When Paul preached repentance, turning to God, and doing works which are befitting of repentance, what was his source material? See what he says? For these reasons the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand witnessing to both great and small, saying what? No other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come. In other words, this message of repentance, turning to God, and doing works befitting of repentance, it's biblical. That's what he's saying. When he makes reference to the prophets and to Moses, he's referring to the Old Testament. This message that I preach is not only the one that I got in the heavenly vision, it's biblical. It's from the scriptures. And then, and then he describes, he breaks that, that point itself. He breaks down a little more. Here's the message of the scripture, that Christ would suffer that he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the people. And they add the word Jewish there for us to understand when he says people to that audience. He means the people of the province there, the Jewish people. And the Gentiles, which, are, which is everybody else. In other words, the, that Christ, that the Messiah, when he comes, when he came, would actually suffer and die, be buried, and then be the first to rise from the dead so that this message could be preached to the Jewish people and to the Gentile people, that is eminently and perfectly biblical. So that's what Paul says his message is. My message is repent, turn to God, that's faith, that's believing. That's, repentance is what it is. Turning to God is faith. That's what it is. And then do good works. Works which are befitting repentance. That's what it is. And all of it is based on the biblical teaching that Christ would suffer and die and be raised from the dead and that this would be preached to everybody in the world and whoever believes is in. Hallelujah. How, how am I doing? Oh. So, 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 someone between now and next week has to remind me because I don't think of this. I, the only time, the only time I look at that clock is on Sunday mornings. Right now, I never look at it during the week, and so it's past eleven thirty, and I've blown right past everything because I talk too much. Do you know that's why the clock is there? That's why there's this. You wonder why is there this big giant clock right there? That was, I, I remember the lady, Marianne Schmidt, her name was. She bought that clock and put it there so I could see it. Right now it says it's, it says it's like 25 after 4. So someone has to remind me during the week to put a battery in it. Or someone just do it. Someone just get a battery in it. Go up there. Hey, De- Deacons, right? Deacon Chris, Deacon Steve, Deacon Bob, if you're watching. 
somebody put a battery in the clock and fix it, would you? I'm not supposed to be climbing ladders anyway, you know, because I fell off one and set me back, set me back for a few years in my life. All right, well, let me end there. Let's pray. That's not a very smooth ending, but you get the idea of what we're talking about, right? What is the gospel? The gospel is a call to repentance, a great gift from God. It's, listen, listen, I'm still talking. Listen, everybody. Listen. It's a gift from God. Repentance. Repent. Believe. which is That's how a person turns to God via faith. And then, not in any way that's meritorious or earns anything or keeps anything, you then devote that redeemed life to works which glorify God. That was Paul's message wherever he went. And it was biblical. And it still is. Our Father in heaven, thank you, Lord God, for our time together here today. And thank you for all of your goodness to us. And help us now to receive this word, have it straight in our minds. Love you, worship you, be humble before you, and share the right message with everyone as we go and preach. Knowing that this is what we're still called to. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.